Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome into the Tuesday, November the 12th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, we'll break down the numbers from Sunday's win in Indy, looking at the snap counts, advanced metrics, and breakthrough performances of several players all of that part of the aftermath. Plus, we'll go back to campus and talk some college football, and we'll continue exploring alternatives at the quarterback position for next season and beyond. And finally, the brilliant article by Jason Harina up on LockedOnDolphins.com. We'll discuss that and much more. But first, before any of that, I kindly invite each and every one of you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Top 200 on Apple Podcasts. Top 100 on Spotify. Let's keep that going. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at WingfieldNFL. Voted the number one follow on Dolphins Twitter. By Dolphins Twitter. You can follow the show at Locked On Fins. We'll follow you back. And of course, check out LockedOnDolphins.com for all your daily written content on your Miami Dolphins. That's another Miami Dolphins. So the piece is up on LockedOnDolphins.com right now. The aftermath, Dolphins 16, Colts 12. They get their second consecutive win of the season. And I know that puts the Dolphins in some tricky territory as far as how to approach the quarterback position next year. We'll talk about that later on in the show, but let's go ahead and talk about why the Dolphins are winning games, and it's all because of a defense that has been patched together with guys off the scrap heap, and no disrespect to the individuals, but let's be real, street free agents, guys that had just got here only two weeks ago, guys that were acquired on September the 1st from other teams' cut lists, guys that were on practice squads that signed to future reserve contracts with Miami, guys that were undrafted after 256 picks in the NFL draft. That's what Brian Flores is working with, and that's what he's getting these numbers out of. You go back to the bye week after the Dolphins were 0-4 and basically stomped out every single game in blowout fashion. Since then, against Washington, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, New York, and the Colts, not the best opposition, but again, consider Miami's players and roster going into these games. The Dolphins rank as follows in the post buy Total defense, 14th best in the National Football League. Passing defense with all those guys I just mentioned. Number 10 in the league. Top 10 passing defense post buy Rushing defense, not very good. 23rd in the NFL. Points allowed, better than half the teams in the league. They are 15th at 21 points per game. And their third down defense is a 8th ranked unit. 33% conversion rate. Again, Case Keenum, Josh Allen, Mason Rudolph, Sam Darnold, and Brian Hoyer. But again, don't forget Miami's secondary and where those guys came from as well. On the year, the Dolphins ranked 25th in total defense, 17th in passing defense, completely absurd. 30th in rushing and still 31st in points allowed because of those first two games. They've missed 50 tackles on the season. Only eight teams have fewer than that. And they have committed fewer penalties per game and fewer penalty yardage per game than anybody else in football. And Brian Flores is blitzing just a shade under 30% of the time. That's 12th most in the NFL. In a game on Sunday, the Dolphins won the turnover, third down, and red zone battles. That's a big feather in the cap. On offense, things are trending up as Fitzpatrick when he took over in the fourth quarter of the Washington game. Since that time, the Dolphins are averaging 21 points per game, a 15-point jump from the first four and three quarters games of the season. On the year, the Dolphins offense ranks 31st in points, 32nd in rushing, 29th in 
passing, and they are 25th on third down and 14th in red zone conversion rate. So still a ways to go there. I contend this offense has to be remade almost at every position except for receiver and maybe tight end. We'll get to that. On the offensive side, the snap counts. Fitzpatrick played all but three snaps in the game because of that weird uh, concussion rule where they brought him out of the game despite not throwing a flag, a double whammy of poor officiating there from the much maligned and deservedly so officials of the NFL. Kalen Balaj was the go-to guy for some reason. 82% of the snaps, 54 in total. Patrick Laird was the second biggest snap getter at running back. He had just eight in the game. Miles Gaskin played five and Chandler Cox was out there for eight snaps. At receiver, Devontae Parker played 63. Alan Hurds played 59. Albert Wilson played 35 and Jakeem Grant 15. So consider the thought there about Alan Hurns over Albert Wilson and Jakeem Grant. That should give you an idea of where this team is thinking about going forward in the future at that position with Preston Williams, Devontae Parker. Alan Hurns is a bigger slot receiver Keep that in mind in the future. At tight end, Mike Gesicki played 40 snaps. Durham Smythe played 31. Clive Walford played just seven. And the entire starting offensive line all played 66 snaps. And Chris Reed came in as the extra offensive lineman for five snaps in the game. Daniel Kilgore was the top graded offensive lineman in this one. He allowed just one pressure, a hurry on 41 pass blocking reps. And his 73.6 run blocking grade, although not great, was tops on the Dolphins squad. His fill-in, Evan Bame, was back at right guard. He was second in run blocking, and he allowed two pressures. Both of those were hurries with no hits on the quarterback. Jesse Davis, same story. Two pressures, both hurries, and his run blocking grade was a far cry from Bame and Kilgore. He was down there by Michael Dieter and Jamarcus Webb, who were both in the abyss in both those categories and pass protection. Webb allowed eight pressures in this game and had the worst run blocking grade on the team. Dieter allowed four pressures and was second worst in run blocking. Blocking. Fitzpatrick spread the ball all over the field to multiple targets to all different levels of the field. He did struggle against pressure, just a 34.8 passer rating and completing just seven of 13 passes under duress. He was better against the blitz than he was a three or four man rush. He had a rating of 84.4 when blitzed and 57.3 when not blitzed. Kalen Balage, his ninth straight game with under two yards after contact on average. He was at 1.8 in this game and averaged just 2.2 yards per carry in general. And of course, both of Patrick Laird's receptions move the chains. One of those, a third down conversion in the red zone. So all things considered here, this offense is getting by. They're not really producing at a big rate. The first half was much more acceptable than the second half, obviously, in this contest. But there's really no vertical shots built into the passing game. They're not using Albert Wilson and Jakeem Grant's speed, basically, really, in any fashion. We did see Jakeem Grant get freed up on that fourth down and three conversion, but he's not running jet sweeps. He's not running fly sweeps. He's not getting reverses. He's not catching screen passes. He's not going vertical. And the same is true of Albert Wilson. And it kind of lends credence to an idea I have at the quarterback position and the types of players that certain quarterback excels with in his past history in the NFL. So yes, he is a veteran quarterback and I know you guys know where I'm going with that. Stick with me. But the way this receiving core has been has been built up around Preston Williams and Devontae Parker, and now Mike Kosicki at tight end, it makes you wonder, what do they prefer at the position over size, strength, good route running, body position, and leverage? Maybe that's the way to go. Maybe you consider that in this year's draft because there are plenty of receivers you can go after in this year's class and guys of all shapes and sizes. So something to think about. And one of my favorite least things to think about is where I'm going to eat after a long day at work. Maybe a tough day at school for you. Are you still stuck at the office? Treat yourself to the meal you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Your sweatpants are on for the day, but you're sick of microwave leftovers and cardboard pizza. Enter DoorDash 
restaurant quality food with a living room dress code. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities, so you might find a new favorite spot too. With door-to-door -door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, Order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national treasures like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and even the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code LOCKEDON. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code LOCKEDON. Don't forget, that's promo code LOCKEDON for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. Hope you all enjoyed your Veterans Day off on Monday and a big salute to those that served and all the families of those that served. We could not do any of this stuff without you, so we are forever grateful and appreciative of that and also the fact that I got to stay home all day and hang out with my wife and our little nephew got to go to lunch on Monday. A very fun off day for us. Thanks to our veterans once again. Let's get back into the recap article, the aftermath article up on LockedOnDolphins.com and pick up where we left off on the defensive side of the ball and many, many guys played many, many snaps in this game. On the defensive line, Taco Charlton played 57. That's 81% of the defense's total workload. Christian Wilkins played 49 snaps in the game. Devon Godshaw played 44. And John Jenkins had just 26. Maybe Charlton's coming on as that edge-setting defensive end they like in this scheme. Jerome Baker, 64 snaps. He only missed time because of that knee injury. Vince Beagle played 56. That's good for 80%. Raekwon McMillan played 44, that's 63%. Sam McGuavin was in there for 28, Charles Harris for 16, and Trent Harris for 14. In the defensive backfield, Eric Rowe, Bobby McCain, and Nick Needham all played every single snap in the game, all 70 of them, 100% workload. Jamal Wiltz played 41, so did Ken Crawley. Steven Parker played 32, Ryan Lewis 28, and Chris Lamont's 20. As far as the stats, Nick Needham had a dominant showing, a 90.3 PFF grade, that's 11 by their measurements. He allowed just 34 yards on eight passing targets. He had the pick, made five tackles, and three of those were run stops within two yards of the line of scrimmage. Charles Harris was the second highest graded defender in the game. He made two run stops, had three tackles, and a pressure on the quarterback. All of that on just 16 snaps in the game. And the next four guys were all from the defensive backfield. Ken Crawley was next. He arrived less than two weeks ago and prevents any catches on 41 defensive snaps, 22 of those obviously in coverage. Bobby McCain has a big day, the big interception, but he also made three tackles and allowed just one catch for four yards on passes targeted in his direction. Jamal Wiltz all over the field. We talked about it on Sunday's podcast or Monday's podcast, the cover two looks, the robber coverage coming down, playing the slot. He's been everywhere and he's found his footing there. He had the best tackling grade of the team on the day and allowed just seven yards on two pass targets. Ryan Lewis had 11 yards on three pass targets and made one tackle, his only opportunity to make make a tackle in the game. 
And then, of course, there is Eric Rowe, who has really settled into his safety position recently quite nicely. He's been doing it since the bye. Over the last four games, he was targeted 16 times on tight ends, allowed seven catches for a 43.8% completion percentage, 69 receiving yards. That's just 4.31 yards per target. He also has 20 tackles, seven of those for run stops while missing just two tackles. In the game on Sunday, he was targeted eight times for just two receptions and 31 yards with four tackles and a run stop. If he does this the rest of the way, he's going to get a new contract from Miami and probably be that Patrick Chung type of role the Dolphins need to really make this defense work. And so now Miami heads back home to face the Buffalo Bills, a team they played just a month ago with a shot at redemption. The 31-21 loss, the Dolphins led that game late into the third quarter and even into the fourth quarter before Buffalo stormed back and took that lead back. We'll see if the Dolphins can make it three in a row. Do they want to make it three in a row? If they do, that's a perfect transition to our next topic here. I put it in the Aftermath article talking about how it might take two to quarterback a, a play on the phrase, it takes two to tango. It's terrible, I know. I'm not here for jokes, unless it's for Blue Chew. But the idea is that you might have to go to the alternative route at the position. And one thing that I really want to get off my chest here first is that why is everybody so up in arms about what happened on Sunday over the fact that you might have lost out on a quarterback and now all of a sudden the entire earth is shattering around you like... Pull up your bootstraps and get back to work, Buttercups, because that's not how this league works. I guarantee you there are multiple contingency plans within the front office to go ahead and see if the situation happens and to attack alternatives, and that's what we're talking about here on the podcast. If Miami can't get in the top two positions and draft whichever quarterback you like, whether it's Tua or Burrow, or maybe it's somebody else, I'm not sure. You guys know how I feel. There's one quarterback in this class above the rest, but if you can't get him, you're going to have to figure it out. The league does not feel sorry for you, and it sure as hell does not stop for you before you get your quarterback. So Miami in 2020, they're going to play football games with or without Tua Tungavailoa, so we have to explore other options if you can't get him. And I always go back to the idea of doubling down on the position. It really started in 2012 with the Seahawks and Russell Wilson and Matt Flynn. The 2016 Eagles did it with Sam Bradford and Carson Wentz and even Chase Daniel, which was a weird one. The 2017 Bears did it with Mitch Trubisky and Mike Glennon. The 2018 Cardinals did it with Sam Bradford again, as well as Josh Rosen. Now, two of those worked, two of those didn't. There are plenty of other teams out there that have taken similar approaches and doubling down at the position, but that's where I think Miami has to go if they can't get in on the top part of this draft at the quarterback position because you have to ask yourself would you rather spend a pick let's say the Dolphins wind up in the four five six maybe somewhere in the bottom of the top 10 if they fall in that range would you rather use that pick on Jake Fromm or Justin Herbert or come back with pick 26 or maybe pick 34 in the second round and take a Jordan Love or a Jalen Hurts, one of these athletic mobile quarterbacks that give you multiple ways to win with an offensive staff and Chad O'Shea that has proven they can maximize the guys they have on their roster and get the most out of their talent. I tend to think the value lays back in the end of the first round or second round there over the third or fourth or fifth best quarterback in the class because the difference between the third best quarterback and let's say the fifth best quarterback is probably more about pro ready now style and I think that Jordan Love's upside makes him better than either of those guys in terms of long-term developments and while I think that Jake Fromm is a good option for this team for his cerebral approach his leadership he can galvanize a locker room he makes big time throws on third down in the red zone a big time clutch performer 
But then I go back to the tape of Utah State, for instance, and I watch Jordan Love do things that really, it, it puts the defense in such peril because of his ability to both move and to throw the football from any platform or arm angle he so chooses, kind of like the Patrick Mahomes throw we saw on Sunday against the Titans where he approached the line of scrimmage, jumps and throws a jump pass on a line. There's very few guys, humans in this planet that can do that. I think Patrick Mahomes is one. I think Kyler Murray's one. I think Russell Wilson, that baseball style throw is kind of one of those guys. And I think Jordan loves the next guy that can do that. And so my idea here is if you don't get the top value investment, try to go backwards and invest time and resources into developing a quarterback like Jordan Love and get his mental aspect of the game up to speed so he can win from within the pocket, within the structure, and then give you the best playmaking quarterback in the NFL off script going outside the pocket. That's the idea. That's how you have a plan for a quarterback. That's how you build a quarterback within your system and make him work for you and get the most out of him. Because if a guy like Lamar Jackson, for instance, goes to, let's say Adam Gase got his hands on Lamar Jackson. Do we think he's doing anything close? to what he's doing right now in Baltimore with John Harbaugh and Greg Roman out there in Baltimore? No, it's not even going to be close. So it's all about trusting the coaching staff to develop the guy they like. And so with that, my approach is this. You consider kicking the tires on a guy like Cam Newton if, if, Big if, I want to be abundantly clear here, if the shoulder is right. If it's not right, nope, not going anywhere near it. But if you can come back and give me a full A-plus grade on the shoulder, then Cam Newton, at 30 years old, is intriguing to me because of a couple of things. He has rare, rare running traits. He gives you a body count advantage in short yardage and goal line situations. He'll miss some throws for you. He'll miss the layups with the accuracy, but the big playability down the field and the big running threat kind of offsets that. It's like the baseball argument again. Do you want to hit for a lower average and have a better OPS and impact the game with more runs? Or do you want to hit singles all day and be a guy that hopefully the rest of the team can knock you in from second base when you get on first and steal second base? That's the approach here. And Cam Newton, for what he is, his best seasons... They never featured star players at the skill positions to begin with. You go back to 2015, his MVP season, by the way, he lost his number one receiver in Kelvin Benjamin, had to go to guys like Mike Tolbert, was going to Greg Olson at tight end over and over again, Ted Ginn, Jericho Cotchery. And the true reason that he was really dominant that year was because of all the running back prowess they had in that backfield and the option to hand the ball off, to keep the ball and to keep defenses guessing. It puts so much stress on the defense. If you get that guy back, you have a chance for him to return to form, build an offense around him, play good defense like Brian Flores likes to do, build up the running game, and just be a team that everybody hates to play that can go into Buffalo, can go up to New Jersey or Boston on a Sunday in December and win a game that way and possibly find an immediate hit at the franchise quarterback position if you develop a system for Cam Newton that works for him and he's healthy and it comes back and it works. And number two, you give yourself a chance to develop a franchise quarterback behind him because what bad does that do you? It doesn't do you any harm to have two guys waiting in the wings to possibly develop as franchise quarterbacks. And number three, because you barely invested at the quarterback position, a late first and early second, you're not completely restricted to the position or that guy going forward. If you wind up with a high draft pick in 2021 and you want to trade up for Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, you can go ahead and make that happen. Multiple hatchlings help you get to the sea faster. That's the way of the turtles. That's the way of the ocean creatures. That's the theme here on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. And the comparisons between what Newton had at receiver in Carolina compared to what he would have here. We talked about it in the offensive snap count segment. Devin Funchess and Kelvin Benjamin, two bigger body guys. Greg Olson, the tight end. Well, Miami with Preston Williams, Devontae Parker, and Mike Gusecki. Kind of a similar build there. 
And lastly here, I do think that Cam Newton's leadership could really galvanize this young locker room. Go back and watch the All or Nothing series on Amazon Prime from last summer when they did the 2018 Carolina Panthers. If you don't fall in love with Cam Newton's character on that show, I don't know what to tell you. I think that he would jive well with Brian Flores and the system and the scheme. Again, it all comes down to the health of Cam Newton's shoulder. And if Miami can't get one of the top quarterbacks, that's the route I think they should take. Multiple guys at the position, throw a bunch of darts until it works. That's your best bet to do it. As for the guys you draft behind him, talking about Jordan Love, I fully believe this guy is the best ball of clay in this draft class. And he, if he gets a year to really absorb the scheme and learn how to play smarter within the structure of the scheme, I do believe he can be a big time player in this league. And then there's also Jalen Hurts, who might be a run-first quarterback, but we're learning now with Lamar Jackson that you can win with quarterbacks like that as long as they're at least efficient enough in the passing game. Either way, picking one of those guys like a Hurts or Love at pick number 26 or pick number 36, wherever it winds up being, is more value to me than Jake Fromm at number six or Justin Herbert at number six because in general, I just don't care for Justin Herbert or Jacob Eason for that matter in general but I still do believe that Jake Fromm would be worth exploring. And when we come back on the other side of the podcast, we'll talk about the best fits for Jake Fromm to pair him with a veteran quarterback. But first, before that... Can't find a workout that keeps you engaged? Peloton is an immersive cardio experience with real-time features that will always keep you coming back. Get $100 off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and get a great cardio workout at your own home. Go to OnePeloton.com, use promo code LOCKED to get started today. We'll talk about some of the other prospects that played in college football across a very exciting, very talent-filled slate of games on Saturday from before the Dolphins win over the Indianapolis Colts. And we took a look at a lot of players from that Alabama-LSU game, quite obviously. But I want to go back to the quarterback discussion first, taking a look at the other avenues outside of the Tungavailoa, Burrow, quarterback two, quarterback three, whoever you might think that is, talking about guys that could be other options for the Dolphins. And someone put this question to me on Twitter in regards to the Cam Newton, Jordan Love idea, asking, wouldn't it be kind of the same thing if you do that with Jake Fromm and Ryan Fitzpatrick? And I say, yeah, for the most part, because you guys have heard me laud Ryan Fitzpatrick as the ultimate leader, the ultimate mentor, the ultimate veteran quarterback in place to mentor but also provide a service as a backup quarterback in the current situation that he's in because Ryan Fitzpatrick, few guys can come off the bench and give you a spark the way that he can. And I still do believe that he can play at that level for a couple more years. But when you really look at this thing from a broader perspective, a widened scope, is Ryan Fitzpatrick and Jake Fromm really going to get you that excited? At least the upside of Cam Newton and Jordan Love is through the roof because Cam is a league MVP a few years back. And Jordan Love, in my opinion, has the most upside of anybody in the entire class. And I know that Chris Greer tends to operate a little bit more conservatively. Uh, We've heard Chris Kaufman, CK Parrot on Twitter, talk about going after Christian Wilkins over a Jeffrey Simmons or in the past with Minka Fitzpatrick over Derwin James. They tend to side on the safe side of things, but that was also before Marvin Allen and Reggie McKenzie got here. And of course, Marvin Allen was in the room when the Chiefs drafted Patrick Mahomes. So maybe there's a connection there. All things told, though, I do think that Ryan Fitzpatrick and Jake Fromm quarterback room wouldn't be the worst thing for this team in the world. Let's talk about the rest of these guys I watched on Saturday. 
And I saw somebody mention this on Monday saying that Jamar Chase of LSU was the best non-quarterback prospect in the game at Tuscaloosa on Saturday. And I love Jamar Chase. He is a big body freak that can get off a line of scrimmage, get off press, high point the football. He has explosive downfield ability. But come on, man. Jerry Judy is unbelievable in the way he can transition in and out of breaks. He can get over the top. He can win underneath. And then once he gets the ball in his hands, it's basically time to put everybody on the defensive backfield into retirement because that guy can run after the catch as well as anybody in college football. So those two guys, in my opinion, are first round picks. Definitely Jerry Judy. Jamar Chase is right up there as well. Penn State's KJ Hamler. Now, I think that the Tua Tungavailoa idea really suits KJ Hamler well because he is pure speed and athleticism. He can really get that thing from 0 to 60 in a blink. Check him out in this thread. Another receiver I talked about was Tyler Johnson from Minnesota. This dude is very very nuanced in the way he creates space and separation as a receiver. He'll catch the football away from his body, on his body with one hand, contested catches. He does a little bit of everything in that regard. So four good receivers in action. All of these videos up on the college football prospects for week 11 article on LockedOnDolphins.com. If you guys want a hammer, a production machine who can run between the tackles, 250 pounds, A.J. Dillon, running back out of Boston College. Power, production, balance, vision. Few guys in college football finish runs the way he does, he could be that true tone setter this team really wants. At safety, I love this kid. Antoine Winfield Jr., son of Antoine Winfield, formerly of the Bills and Vikings. He can flat ball, man. He's got seven picks this year, had two in that big win over Penn State. He's 5'10", 205, but he excels in his preparation, sound tackling, and ball skills, all three things that Brian Flores loves in his defensive backs. And the last guy I had up here was Yatir Gross Matos, the defensive end from Penn State. The long arms, the ability to lock out on the edge as well as rush the passer just 245 I think he'll have to add more to that frame and I think he can do that if he wants to play in this defense but he's a heavy-handed projection to a two-gap scheme like Miami and I think he'd be a great fit here probably sometime in the second round I don't think he's a first round talent but he has the ability in this defense to really excel Later on in the scouting process, I'll go back to that Alabama-LSU game and get a look at all the dudes in that game. Caleb Von Chase on Anthony Jennings. Two guys I think pair very well with the Miami Dolphins scheme on defense. On the offensive side, you had Alex Leatherwood, the offensive lineman. Adrian McGee from LSU. Those guys can do it. Najee Harris was a terrific freshman back a couple years ago. Had a slump as a sophomore season now in his junior year. Basically looking like Josh Jacobs 2.0 there for Alabama. But Clyde Edwards-Hilaire from LSU, he's no slouch either. You've got the receivers in that game, all the linebackers that didn't play and did play, just a bunch of talent all over the field. We'll get to more of that. But to close up today's podcast, I want to give my man Jason Harina some props for an article he wrote up on LockedOnDolphins.com. And the title might be kind of misleading to you or get you angry at first because it says, or rather is titled, Brian Flores is sabotaging his career. Very, very bold statement that certainly gets your attention right away in the title. But as Jason is wont to do, he tends to find these maybe somewhat extreme arguments that seem outlandish, but then by the time you read his work, you get through all the steps that he leads you down, he guides you into this path, and then you realize that's a great point. And the way he puts it is that Stephen Ross and Chris Greer had dismantled this roster to the point where they were going to make it impossible for Brian Flores to win any games, and all he had to do was basically play yes man and just go lie down and really could have even just quit on the job in general and let the team get walked over every single week, go 0-16, get his 
this future first round, first overall rather quarterback, and he would come back with all job security in year number two, but he refused to do that, instead picking up a few of these measly wins in November, as Jason puts it, and I agree with him in that sense, but the fight and the determination and the will to go out and do a job every single week of Brian Flores is what's most commendable here. As Jason continues the argument that Flores, after losing a Minka Fitzpatrick or having regression from Jakeem Grant and Charles Harris, and this after losing Laramie Tunzel and Kenny Stills, and the NFL talking about investigating Miami for tanking, they've come back and responded and shown the most amount of fight possible they could have given Brian Flores to the point to where he has his team trending up in November and into December. And that just does not happen across the league because the way the league is designed, you're going to get injuries, you're going to lose guys, guys are going to be less effective. As they get more banged up, you typically get worse as the year goes along, except for a few teams like, for instance, the New England Patriots. And here the Dolphins are with their point differential climbing up and up and up every single week, their yardage output, their defensive performing, everything trending up. And it's all because of Brian Flores and the message that he has delivered and solidified on this roster. Go check out the article, LockedOnDolphins.com. It's titled, Brian Flores is Sabotaging His Career by Jason Harina. And you guys can follow him on Twitter at Miami D Punks. That's P-U-N-X at the end of punks. And with that, we're going to go ahead and get out of here for the day. You guys all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Lockdown Sports family of podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the show at Lockdown Fins. Keep up to date on the Daily Dolphins blog over at LockdownDolphins.com. You guys have a great rest of your Monday, Tuesday rather. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for a crossover edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football. Fins up. We'll make a